Uh, what we want to do is really just uh, spend about 45 minutes to an hour uh, informally talking about uh, a pretty important figure uh, relating to uh, Protestantism for sure, uh, but certainly for Baptist life as a whole. And so uh, we're honored here to have uh, Professor Gordon with us. And you've, Professor Gordon, have basically spent uh, about the last decade plus of your life sort of pouring over um, uh, Calvin's Institutes, uh, his biblical commentaries, uh, his letters, and so on. So just, just begin, tell us a little bit about the journey. Why Calvin? What started mm-hmm. you down this, this path? This is, this is a somewhat unedifying story uh, in, in that uh, I, um, about 2007, so the time you remember, um, I was in my office, and the uh, woman who was in charge of history at Yale University Press was doing, as they often do, with um, they come around to see what you're working on, to see if there's a sort of interest. And, and she made an appointment. I thought, gosh, I don't, I don't really have very much to say to this person. But she was insistent on having an appointment. So she came in. She's quite a character, uh, uh, quite a personality. And she came in, and she sat down with it. Got, and she said, got out a pen and paper and, and said, uh, tell me what you're working on. And I said, OK. So I started to tell her. And I noticed very quickly she wasn't taking any notes. <laughs> Uh, and, and I thought, oh, this isn't going very well. And so I, I, I said, do you have something in mind? And she said, I do, actually. She said, um, 2009 is the anniversary of the birth of John Calvin. And I said, yes. And uh, she said, we would like to have a biography of John Calvin. And I'd always thought, you know, I work on the Swiss Reformation, and people always assumed when you work on the Swiss Reformation, you really work on Calvin. But I was actually more interested in the kind of Zwinglian, as you know, uh, sort of Zurich, German-speaking side of, of, the, of that Reformation. Um, so I thought, you know, I don't know. I mean, what, what is there to do with, what do I have to do with John Calvin, and, and what is there to say about John Calvin? There are numerous biographies, you know, right, you know, famous biographies of him. Um, what could I possibly add to this? Uh, but she was quite in- insistent, and my colleague, and you, you know, someone you know well, Andrew Pedigree, uh, encouraged me to, to, to think about this. So I said, well, let me go away and think about it and draw up what I might do, and then you can tell me whether you're interested. Mm-hmm. So I went away and, and thought about it. And, and what I discovered in, in reading it, was that the part about Calvin that people didn't seem to know very well were his letters. Hmm. Um, one of the things that's always been said about Calvin is that he doesn't write about himself very much. Uh, so that whereas Luther has table talk and he writes about himself all the time and, and talk, you know, is extremely self-referential, uh, uh, Calvin avoids talking about it. So th- he's often thought to be a very difficult subject for a biography. Well. He is in, in, in some ways. But, it, but in fact, I thought, once you look at the letters, and then when I started to look at the biblical commentaries, you actually found that there were ways in which he wrote about himself quite a lot. Um, uh, he exposed himself quite considerably in the letters, his, his feelings, uh, his life, um, uh, his dependence on friends. Uh, and in the biblical commentaries, he not infrequently, when you read what he had to say about Paul, Paul was, was Calvin's great mentor uh, and model. Uh, when you looked at what he had to say about the patriarchs, what he had to say about the prophets in particular, um, 
you realize that there was a lot of himself in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that he was really not, he was writing, of course, about the prophets, but there was a lot of his own experiences, um, both um, uh, in times of trial, um, his own experiences with dealing with other people, his own sense, although he never called himself a prophet, but his own sense of having a prophetic office and what that meant. Uh, all of these things um, started to appear. So I wrote up a proposal uh, which said, I think that there's a Calvin we can have access to that I'm not seeing in the other biographies. Hmm. And so what, I mean, it, it, it wasn't either or, but a book that was perhaps slightly less theological in orientation, but focused a lot on who was John Calvin hmm. um, and why did he do and write the things that he did became my interest. Uh, and then over the, the next, I had a very tight deadline because it had to be out for 2009. Um, um, I got sick for a period of time when I was unable to, to work. So it became very tight. But I spent a lot of the, the time with the letters, with reconstructing his friendship circles, reconstructing his involvement. And what I discovered, and you, I think you find this in a lot of historical research, people tend to repeat the same things over and over again. They quote the same passages. And I thought, actually, if you look at the whole letter, he has a lot more to say. If, you know, if once you get past the sound bites that are always repeated, mm -hmm. you know, historians, like many people, have their habit of just regurgitating things that are, are said, uh, and, and maybe not spending, often spending as much time reading through the whole document. And if you read the whole letters, you discovered that he did have some things to say about himself. So, so as a historian then, thinking through that for just a minute, was that, was that more of a challenge, or was it freeing in a sense to not be able to, to be confined to regurgitating an old narrative as opposed to was was that was that freeing in a sense as a historian or more challenging because now you've got a different corpus that you're looking at and you've got you have somebody that's wholly unfamiliar to you yeah I mean in that part the the unfamiliar uh, was uh, actually quite terrifying mm -hmm. uh, because you had no idea whether perhaps there was a very good reason why nobody had written a book like this <laughs> uh, uh, and I was about to prove that point uh, um, but when I was fortunate to have people, I, I taught a class in St. Andrews where we, I don't know if you were in that class, but we, they read chapters. Yes. I had colleagues who were very kind to read it. There were very other people who were extremely generous with their time to read it, and they were encouraging. They had often corrections and uh, things. Uh, the press were very uh, hands-on, so I, they read <laughs> the chapters. Um, and people said, this is, this is telling a story that you know, we're not entirely familiar with. For some people, it was a deeply troubling story because Calvin, uh, amongst his many qualities, had an extreme uh, temper. And that comes, out, that comes out in the letters. He talks about it himself. He often talks about it in the third person, referring to difficulties Paul has at various points and, and a kind of anger. And, and it's clear that he associates himself so there's, there, are, there are darker sides uh, to that character. But, um, you know, I, I felt like a portrait had started mm -hmm. to emerge. Um, but it was, it was, it was frightening. Um, um, a, a friend of mine has just published a biography of Luther in which she's taken a very different turn on. She had the same feeling. You, you, you just don't know what's going to happen when, when mm -hmm. people see this. And there are a lot of people who are invested in a, having a certain type of Calvin. 
uh, and they probably weren't going to like it so much. Um, you said a number of things I want to follow on. Sure. We pivot for right. just a second. Yeah. We got uh, doctoral students in the room as well as some master's students. And uh, but you said, and when you sat down to consider the project, you said draw it up. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about the process. I mean, how did you do that? Because the students here are going to be thinking about uh, perspectives, um, dissertation projects, and they're thinking right now, how do I do that? And then the follow-up question to that is your methodology for relating what you found in the letters to what you found in more of his expositional writings as it relates to the commentaries and some of his theological writings. How, what, methodologically, how did you make those connections? Yeah, that's, that, was, that was a real challenge. On the first, um, on the first part of the question, um, if, if we were still in the age of typewriters and uh, paper, I would have had many, many baskets full of crumpled out pieces of paper because uh, my method of, of, of working is to write and write and write and edit and edit and edit and then marry somebody who edits and edits and edits uh, uh, and who comes back to me and says, I think what you mean here is, and, and I say, yes, that was what I meant. Thank you. Uh, um, so I, I, the one thing I would, well, one thing I would encourage people is to keep writing. Mm. Uh, don't think there's going to be a magic moment when it's all going to fall together. Mm. It, at least unless it's, you have a gift that I certainly don't have. Uh, I write and write and write, and out of that, um, uh, it's by no means a kind of Septuagint experience. It's, it's, uh, I, I have to keep writing and writing and writing until it gets close to. And then often it will come to me walking the dog or something will happen mm -hmm. and yeah. I'll go back and, and revise and just read, read through it. Um, I sometimes read it aloud to see what it sounds like. Um, uh, just keep, keep, keep editing but keep writing. Writing is a discipline and it's not easy to do and it's easy to lose that. Um, discipline. Uh, so I, I but you know that book took, went through various different forms and I, I changed it but also when I started to write the book I realized I was going to depart quite quickly from the plan. Mm -hmm. So it was always fluid. Mm -hmm. Chapters got moved, um, uh, past, things got left out. Uh, one of the things probably everyone here has experienced that is that you have to accept that when you write something it's like making a film, not that I've ever made one, but uh, that a lot of it ends up on the cutting room floor. Uh, that only a portion of what you write yeah. will go into, you, you know that, oh, from yeah. doing a dissertation. Yeah. Uh, that you have to accept that a lot of it's just not going to make it into <laughs> mm -hmm. the final yeah. and not be inhibited by that. Yeah, I think one of the things for me, uh, teaching students about that is um, oftentimes, especially in a Western American context, students think writing is about the product. It's really more about the process. It's a process. It's, it's, it's working from start to finish through a process and seeing what does emerge, what, what comes at the end of that, because you don't know going into it what, what is going to come out on the backside of this. Well, you know, as you know from Calvin's Institutes, in 1559 in his preface, he says, I think I finally got it. <laughs> and that's through numerous... Um, versions of it. And he reworked the 1559. That's when the four books emerged. Uh, it, he, he completely redid it. Yeah. Um, but it was a lifelong work. It was a book that was always in process. So you actually alluded to that in your um, biography of the Institute. Yes. You talk a lot about sort of the development of uh, not just the Institute itself, but the way in which sort of Calvin's life mirrored and reflected 
the development in the institute itself. So I thought maybe, maybe you could speak a little bit to that, um, and not just in terms of what was his audience with the institutes, but how sort of his own personal experiences, either in or outside of Geneva, played a role in that. Yes. Um, the book was never intended, I mean, I think it's, it's important to, to know what the book was never meant to be. It was never meant to be what we would think of as a theological textbook. Mm -hmm. It was a book of Calvin's life. It starts in 1536 when he's a nobody. He's a refugee. He's in Basel. He wants to become a great humanist. He has great career aspirations, but nobody knows who he is. He writes this work. We don't know exactly why he did it, but he wrote this work, which was to be a summary of, of doctrine. He didn't do it to become famous, but it caught people's attention very quickly. It outlined it, it, with you know, extraordinary uh, clarity the, uh, the kind of doctrine of the, of the Reformed Church. Um, and so, but that, you know, it reflected where he was at that particular moment. But Calvin was somebody who was extraordinarily restless person. Uh, he read voraciously, and of course, you know, just come back, I'm mindful of that we haven't talked about the second point of your, your question, but uh, part of this sort of crossover between the two is he read voraciously, mm -hmm. he studied voraciously, uh, he, uh, he was constantly working. Um, it's said that Calvin would allow him sort of, he would work for several hours and then he would allow himself ten minutes to walk around the, mm -hmm. the room, that he was so careful of his time. He was extremely mindful of time. Um, and he, um, so, and he was, as, as his career developed, he was, as we know, constantly involved in various debates, some controversy, everything from, you know, double predestination through Servetus, um, against the Lutherans on, on the, the Lord's Supper, trying to put the visible church together. He, that was his great concern, to create unity. But all of these, are, these questions, as they come up in their historical contexts yeah. in those moments, are mapped onto the subsequent editions. So in the 1540s, we know he read his way as much as he could through classical philosophy. In the 1540s, he also read the scholastic tradition. Calvin was this autodidact. He, wrote, he, re he didn't have a theological degree. He, uh, he studied law and the humanities, but he, he self-educated himself in theology by constantly reading. Mm. Um, and as that reading expanded, so did the institutes as it went by. Mm. And he was constantly thinking about the, 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 the question of how to create a summary of doctrine which reflected, as he understood it, the biblical revelation. Mm. And for him, as for other reformers, uh, that theological structure, or actually Calvin didn't like the word theological, but he, that doctrinal structure was based on Romans. And so he was trying, this is when he says when he finally got it, he said, I'm trying to find the way in which doctrine can be, biblical doctrine can be most clearly laid out so that people will understand it, that's faithful to scripture, but also people can understand it. And he, so he's constantly working at the, to trying to do that. He's constantly reading. He's constantly involved in controversies. These are all, uh, you know, it's a kind, I've ref, done the, on a couple of occasions, I've referred to it as, a, it's, a, it's a form of a spiritual autobiography, hmm. but it's also an intellectual autobiography. Um, it's, Calvin was always, 
as I've said on various occasions, Calvin was always becoming Calvin. He was always a person in a state of becoming. Mm. And his book reflects a life that was constantly in motion. So we know it from the 1559 edition, the Latin translation, which is the, the McNeil uh, or the beverage one, whichever you prefer to use. Um, but in fact, there are multiple editions that lead to that point. That's the end process. Yeah. You said, um, we're kind of going all over the place yeah. here, but uh, I want to come back to something. You said you uh, may discover a, a character um, that uh, it's a little, a little unsettling to you. Um, and in our tradition, uh, we're, we're Baptists, but our tradition, though, is still um, very fond of Calvin. Mm -hmm. um, and some of us are more fond of Calvin than others. But mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it, I mean, it is a bit unsettling sometimes to, to discover someone that's a bit of a hero. Um, and we want to kind of keep those things more pristine. Even if you think about the institutes and the development of the institutes, we, we don't see the institutes as a pristine statement of doctrine that now becomes a touchstone for maybe our own confession. Um, why should we, maybe why should we consider the development of the institute differently and the person himself differently? Um, if Calvin was, as you were saying, a, his own sort of spiritual formation in this process, is he a different kind of model for us than maybe we would initially think? Instead of a model, a trophy on a shelf, but a more of a formative sort of model for our own thought and process and development. Do you see what I'm getting at? I, I, I hope I do. I, I want to be fair to that. I think it's a really important idea. Calvin would, I mean, Calvin was, this is a man who was aware by the end of his life that he was developing something of a, uh, a cult following. And that's one of the reasons, like, very, very much like uh, Moses, with whom he had his, another degree of uh, uh, affinity, uh, was insisted that he should be buried on an unmarked grave. Um, he didn't want his that to become any kind of memorial. He was a he didn't want he, you know uh, many will be familiar that he only really writes about his life directly in the in the preface to the Psalms commentary in 1557, and there it's it's very it is he does provide some details of his life. He talks about his journey. But it's very much, you know, he does it through identification with David uh, and the sort of spiritual stru structure uh, that, that is part of what he has to say about the Psalms, where he says every human emotion is to be found in the Psalms. Mm. Uh, and so his own spiritual journey is, is mapped onto the, to the, to the Psalms. Calvin would have hated and did hate um, uh, any notion that he would become a plaster saint on a shelf. Uh, that that because he was fully aware that what he was doing uh, was never going to be finished, and that others and that what doctrine was for him was the best possible explanation, uh, articulation, interpretation of Scripture for his time, which is, doesn't mean it's cast into a, the museum or behind a piece of glass. It's not just a relic from the past. We read it now. I do. Lots of us do. Um, but for him, it had to speak to his age, that work. 
And he knew, and he was very clear, that after he was gone, people would either take his work and, and write it differently or write new forms of work. So he saw that every age, you know, he believed that every age, to be faithful to the gospel, had to be able to speak, or every you know, reformer, every churchman, had to be able to speak to its own, or you know, his own age. And that would require new forms of, of, of writing. The institutes he saw was what was needed for his, for his time. This is not a relativizing of it. It simply it, it goes to his most profound, profound conviction that this is about the application of the word. And the word has to be accommodated to one's age. And so he believed that 100 years later there would be, there would be new ways of expressing it. Not new truths, not... not different truth, but that that community would have to speak to in a, in a language that made... Um, so it's... I, I admire Calvin enormously um, for a variety of reasons, but not least of which, just to go to your point, is that he's not a static figure. He was incredibly dynamic, and he had an incredibly profound sense of the dynamic relationship between, uh, you know, the faithful and, and the word, hmm. and its transformative effect. He also was a great historian. He knew there was change, that you know, the, the, what's created in Geneva in the 16th century was not exactly the same of, as the early church. There's a great historical gulf, and he understood that. Hmm. And when people wrote to him, and the refugees or the community in Frankfurt wrote to him and said, well, how do we do things? We, you know, we're arguing about the way the Lord's Supper should be celebrated and some people say we should do this and some people should you know it's like a dinner party some people say we, the forks should be on the left and some say they should be on the right uh, what do we do what do you do in Geneva and Calvin wrote back very bluntly and said do not make a Rome of Geneva um, you know you will have to find in those matters you need to find your own way um, uh, that's not what this is really about what it is about is, is fidelity to the word of God so does this explain how he starts the institutes, or at least the, the final edition, when he gets at the, the, um, the complexity of knowledge? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a great point. Um, it's an invitation where he talks about at the opening of, of uh, uh, the two forms of knowledge, knowledge of, of God and of ourselves. These are not two separate truths. Um, the whole of the Institutes is going to be about how we know God. Yeah. And that ultimately we know ourselves as, you know, in, in Christ. Uh, and that's, you know, that's going to, that's, that's, that knowledge of God is going to, to ultimately bring knowledge of who we really are. First as sinners, and then as, um, you know, redeemed. And, and that's, and, and, but it's a, it's, it's a journey in that those who are, you know, for, you know, Calvin speaks of as the elect, will journey through this world slowly, painfully, but you know, ever more uh, towards, you know, towards Christ being, you know, he uses a variety of language, being engrafted uh, in Christ, a union with Christ, uh, the imitation of Christ. Mm. But, but it's the, you know, that opening words, I think you're absolutely right, is the beginning of a of a journey, and the whole book is a journey. Yeah, interesting. Let me let me piggyback on that. Um, I'd be fascinated to know. It it seems 
especially in our context, we get sort of a polarized Calvin. Mm -hmm. Love him or I hate him. Mm -hmm. And even outside of Baptistic circles, he is a very polarizing figure. Mm -hmm. There are people who either look at him and what he did in Geneva as, like Knox said, sets up the most perfect you know, school since, the, since Christ and the Apostles, mm -hmm. or you see someone who is an authoritarian dictator. Um, and so, so is, is he really a polarizing figure, as it were, or was he, is this more the, the misappropriation or misunderstanding of him, historically speaking? Because certainly um, he is, in some respects, dictating terms, but at the same time, you bring out in, in, in the biography uh, that he, for instance, going back to this idea of accommodation, he was very accommodating to the other Swiss cities, even on his agreement with the consensus on the supper, giving up really a lot of his position for the sake of unity. I, th I think the uh, answer to that question is yes, yes, and yes. Uh, it's the, um, he was a deeply polarizing figure uh, on, on um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, partly, uh, at, at, at the most basic level, he had, uh, as he admitted himself, a personality that could, could, could move between harsh judgment and he could be harshest on his friends. Um, and he was very harsh on himself. I mean, one of the things, you talk, go just back for a moment to what I discovered that, for me, anyhow, that was surprising, was Calvin's own sense of, of the inadequacy, that time was running out. He hadn't done nearly what he should have done. Even the institutes, he felt that he, he was not able to work on it to the extent that he should have. It should have been better. It should have been done sooner. Uh, the time was, was short. His health was very precarious. Um, so he was incredibly harsh on himself. He was incredibly demanding on his friends. To, I mean, Calvin is, is, is someone who had very clear expectations of what other people should be doing. Um, uh, his, his doctrinally, of course, very div uh, 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 divisive on on question of predestination, mm -hmm. double predestination, which you know the execution of Servetus in 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 Geneva in 1553 uh, absolutely tarred his reputation across Europe for many people. He was the monster of Geneva. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a person who was personally responsible for the execution of well. Whether people regarded Servetus in a variety of ways, but he was the execution that Calvin was this reformer who had become executor. Mm -hmm. It's not true in that sense. He didn't. He didn't uh, have a direct hand in in, in the in w the final decision. But his he was extremely d uh, uh, divisive. But at the same time, this I think goes to the, the third yes, um, uh, is that he he believed passionately in the unity of the visible church. Mm. And he was willing to try and to bend uh, as far as he thought he could to find agreement with the Lutherans, to find agreement with the Zwinglians. Now, he failed mm -hmm. in the end. But his, one of his enduring legacies of the Reformed tradition in the 16th and 17th century is this sense of a kind of international uh, association of mm -hmm. churches, that you're part of a broader Catholic sense in the sense of unified church. And that's very was very important to, to Calvin. That there was, you know, a term that was used before it was kind of, a kind of international Calvinism. So he was prepared to do that. So, and and this is again one of the things that I found fascinating about doing the biography is he was a person of contradictions, as mm -hmm. most people are. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he could be harsh, he could be difficult, he could slam the door on people. On the other hand, he could write really problematic and difficult and, and, and harsh things, but he could also write the most beautiful things. He could be the best of friends. He was uh, you know, heartbroken when his wife and, and child died. Um, he, uh, he would do a lot for the unity of the church, and at other times he would pick a fight which would almost seem unnecessary. Fascinating. He was human. <laughs> what questions do you have? It's been a, yeah. Uh, hey, Dr. Gordon. My name is Alex DePrima, PhD student here uh, in historical theology. I wanted to first just thank you for uh, the labor of love that was the biography on Calvin and then the subsequent biography on, on the Institutes. Oh, thank you. I, I read both and loved them. Oh, um, my, my question is, I, I was really, um, uh, helped by a certain feature of the portrait of Calvin that you painted, and that's this idea that, that he um, assumed this prophetic ministry and in some ways viewed himself as a prophet of the age. My question is, um, maybe you've heard, perhaps read Alistair McGrath's biography on C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the subtitle is Eccentric Genius, yeah. Reluctant Prophet. Yeah. Well, I don't want to draw a parallel between those two figures at yeah. all, Lewis and Calvin, but that, just that phrase, reluctant prophet. Um, should we think of Calvin, in, in, in your reading of him, as this figure who, who sort of, I mean, he, he just, he knows he's called, he's, the hour's arrived, and he's the man, and here he comes, the prophet sent from God. Yeah. Or should we interpret him as a man who entered into that office with a great degree of reluctance? Because there are certain, certain aspects of his biography that, that would lead me to think perhaps he he entered into his role in Geneva with a tremendous degree of fear and trepidation that though he recognized mm -hmm. the divine calling, perhaps he was very reluctant to assume that role. But I'm not exactly sure. Some things in, in, in the biography um, challenged that, that thinking that I had of Calvin, but I'm, I'm just interested to know your take on that. Thank you very much. I think um, it may be unhelpful to say this, but I'll try and explain it, but it, it's both. Uh, when you look at what he says about his life in the preface to the Psalms, he wants to associate himself with a kind of reluctant David, drawn, picked, but not certain why. He, he says he comes from an obscure background, which is sort of true, uh, that he was, you know, that he, he wants very much to emphasize that this is not his ego. And this, he writes this in 1557. He's, by this point, Servetus has been dead for four years. Calvin has been traduced by uh, people all across mm -hmm. the, uh, who say this is a monstrous ego who has done this. Um, and he wants to say, no, that's not. On the other hand, he's not, he never calls himself a prophet. He speaks of Luther as a prophet. But he will not call himself, but I think you're absolutely right. He has a strong sense of a prophetic office. And by association, when he writes about the prophets, he certainly says, kind of, I, I know where, I know what, how they felt. You know, he's, so he's clear that he has, he's very clear he has a, um, a special calling. He's in no doubt about that. Um, he was never, probably never ordained in any um, you know, conventional way by the 16th century standards. He didn't, but he didn't, um, but he preached. Uh, he certainly um, uh, was involved in, in the sacramental life of, of the church. He, you know, he was a doctor of the church. 
he performed um, the decanal work of the church. So he saw himself as, as holding an office, even if it didn't have official kind of ecclesiastical. Um, so he was no, in no doubt of who he was. And he was in no doubt that his institutes was highly influential. He knew exactly who he was. And he knew what authority his name carried when he wrote to people. Um, he knew it mattered to people what he thought. So there's no doubt about that. But was he entirely uh, self-confident? No. That's, this is this point that you, know, you, you raised. I mean, um, this sense that his body was withering away. His body, in some ways, was a metaphor for his own frailty. And he talks about this, that, you know, that, that he's, he suffers these terrible illnesses. Um, and uh, he saw this, uh, you know, his own, that was a reflect, reflection almost of his spiritual weakness. That he was doing so much, you know, again, associating himself with Paul. You know, the sense of time was running out. He was doing not, he was not doing nearly what he was called to do. So he, it, it was a burden as well. He felt the weight of... Um, this calling very heavily, but on the other hand, he knew what that calling, who he was as a, as a person. Hmm. What other questions do we have? I just wanted to. I I, I want to say number one, I love your passion for oh. Calvin, and it just makes me want to go grab my institutes and <laughs> everything, and start reading them all over again. Um, but I just wondered if you could comment a little bit on the. Calvin and discipleship and, and looking at his work and what he's done in our modern understanding of discipleship, what Calvin was trying to do for the church and teach the people and help them to be the people that he understood that God wanted them to be. How do you, what, what, what are your thoughts on how he went about discipleship? Yeah, that's a great question. Calvin, This is a word, we raised it before, but a word that's, that's so lost uh, its meaning in, in, in well, certainly in, in the world I grew up in, it was, it was not uh, highly valued, the word piety. For Calvin, pietas, which he uses over and over again, piety, is the life of uh, worship, discipleship, uh, uh, we talked about this before, of remembrance, remembering God's gifts, of charitable works. Not that these are, are meritorious, but they flow from the gifts of God. Um, but he saw the whole world as like a school. That whether you were in church, you, were, you heard the word of God, you were instructed in it, in preaching, you, had, you were fed by uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, you were strengthened by uh, fellowship. You were disciplined when you did something you shouldn't have, but then reconciled <laughs> again. Um, and, but in the wider world, you, you lived within a family. And he saw the family as a kind of, like, like the church, sustaining, educating, nurturing. School was instructive. But all of it, whether it was psalm singing, uh, you know, the... the Worship, sacraments, service in, in the community, all of this for Calvin was possible because of uh, sanctification. It was the journey towards sanctification and that discipleship, all, which, in, which it for him embraced 
the whole of this, you know, you talked about the school of Christ. Well, that's, uh, um, this is for Calvin how it was. He, he was a pedagogical figure. He, he believed that, uh, you know, he was a humanist. He believed that in the sense of the 16th century, he believed that education was transformative. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, was, this, was, this is what sustains us and the way in which we participate in, in, in the journey. Now for Calvin, that had a strong ecclesiastical structure because the fourfold ministry, uh, the ministry had a crucial part of it, but he also wanted to say that the laity are, are fully partners. Every, everyone is responsible for their, for their discipleship. But on the other hand, it's also a community. Um, and for him, that's, uh, that is the, the, you know, the path of sanctification. It's the, it's the growth of piety, which for him is a, a, a joyous clinging to, he uses the word clinging to, to Christ, uh, being engrafted into Christ. It is... Um, um, so that for him, discipleship is about this growth in piety, but it's also uh, about the transformation of the world. You know, it's about um, building, literally building the kingdom. Uh, and the world, you know, this is Calvin's uh, uh, piety and, and, and uh, ecclesiology are not as kind of other world mysticism. It's... it's you know, this kingdom will be partially realized in, in the world and people are called to its service. Um, but there's always one, it's, it's a kind of only, it's, it points towards a, a, a different reality, but it is, you know, we, we, are, we build schools, we build churches, we, we, we discipline communities, we, uh, we try to build, you know, it's about building, you know, Calvin was not uh, overly idealistic, but he thought, you know, we are called to build the, the, the kingdom as, insofar as we can. <laughs> Yes, thank you very much, Dr. Gordon. Um, you mentioned this morning, talking about exiles, mm -hmm. Calvin writing to the exiles, mm -hmm. and he was not in favor of a position where they had a converted heart and they accepted the gospel, but they continued outwardly to practice mm -hmm. Catholic practice. Mm -hmm. um, so for Calvin, what did worship look like in exile? Um, I'd love to hear more about that. And then, maybe more theologically speaking, um, how does the worshiping church in this age, as in the 16th century, always worship as exiles? Mm -hmm. hmm. Yes, oh, that's a that's a great couple of, of points. What does what in a way what does the was the the church look like in exile? As if I've got that that point. Um, in many ways, that one way of approaching that is what he thought the church looked like through the the centuries and before the Reformation. What did the church look like for him when he talked about being in an age of darkness? And for, 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 for Calvin, the one thing that sustains the church in its, in, its, uh, um, in its most dire moments, whether it's in, you know, he's speaking about the exiles, uh, the exilic existence of, of, of the Israelites, or whether he's talking about his own day, is, is the preaching of the word. Um, and that is that. Without that, there is no church. There is no continuity. Um, he will say, you know, the, the, sacri the obviously the preaching of the word and, and the, the right administration of the sacraments are the are the marks of the church. But without the preaching of the word, there's, it's 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 just it's not it's 
it's it's and and that would go to you know whether it's his own, his own day with without the promises of 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 God in Christ unless those are 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 preached um, you you have nothing because the people will as I talked about this morning they will forget who they are they will forget uh, God's judgment this notion for for Calvin which is um, of forgetting who you are um, so that's that I think the preaching is is for him the lifeblood. So just that, that thought about preaching, yeah. um, faithfully preaching, two, two questions related to that, because obviously there's, there, there were lots of faithful preachers to the word, mm -hmm. faith, faithful reformers, mm -hmm. uh, strong personalities mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and we sometimes get this picture from history of Calvin as doing what he wants to do and being sort of an island unto himself. Mm. And, and he dictates terms in Geneva, and, mm. and he's this, he is this island. Could, if you could just speak a little bit to, A, a little bit of the relationship that he had with, uh, the, uh, with the council at Geneva and uh, you know, sort of the way in which you know, that interplace situates in terms of what is he able to do and not able to do. And then you really tease out in your biography the important relationships in friends that he had. Yes. Men like Martin Bootser and... Mentor. Uh, yeah, and Bullinger and people, people of that sort of length. Also a mentor, yeah. uh, Speak to that in terms of, of how much of an impact did that have on him not leaving him in isolation? There was no Calvin in isolation. He never existed. It's one of the reasons why I find many, you know, some of you may have been to the Reformation Wall in Geneva. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, which I, I once I described, or I described in the book as being like a kind of, he looks like a, uh, a kind of um, singer with a backup group uh, <laughs> behind him. And, um, and uh, sort of, uh, as, as if it is Calvin alone. And for, you know, it, we've done that. We've yeah. created that figure. He didn't create that figure. You know, our, our emphasis on, on individuals, and this is going back through the 19th century, in the 18th century, Calvin, for good or bad, was, was accredited with all sorts of things he couldn't possibly have done on his own. He, Calvin would not have existed without Guillaume Ferrel, uh, Pierre Ferret, he, who were his close friends, and, and um, uh, without that friendship network, he would not have, he relied on them. And as we talked about uh, this morning, when he at the end of Theodore Bass's life of Calvin is him in bed dying with all his friends gathered around mm. him. With, and he charges them with continuing what the work, not the work I have done, but the work we have done. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, without these friendship circles, without the, the patronage of someone who was only five years older than he was, but Heinrich Bullinger in Zurich, without Bullinger's status as a European reformer, Calvin would not have been able to do what he did. Uh, without Philip Melanchthon, uh, Calvin would not have been able to do what he did. Philip Melanchthon was, was Calvin's, in some ways, great, uh, one of his major influences. Uh, Martin Bootser, whom you mentioned, was a great mentor to Calvin. He taught him how to be, Calvin was kicked out of, of Geneva, he went to Strasbourg, and, and Bootser said to him, you need to control your temper, uh, you need to think how to work with other people, and you need to learn how to become a pastor. And he trained him in Strasbourg how to become a pastor. He made him, you know, put him in the French congregation in, in, in Strasbourg. Without these people, there would have been no John Calvin, and there is no John Calvin um, in, in isolation. Uh, from them, so we need to know more about these other people because they are, you know, 
They are the people that, that were. I mean, John Calvin was a, in some ways a singular genius, but you know, he would never have achieved what he did uh, without many, many talented people who stuck with him even when he was at his most difficult. Well, I have one final question. I wonder if there's a, one final question in the room before we, yeah. Dr. Gordon, thank you again. Um, just briefly, in your experience, I mean, with all that you know of Calvin, uh, there were there are so many traditions mm -hmm. that have emerged uh, out of uh, um, Calvin's own writings, Calvin's own thoughts that, that identify themselves as reformed, mm -hmm. or that uh, sort of want to take up the idea of reformed and always reforming. And this was sort of kind of the motivating motivating idea of some of what the reformers did. So in in light of that, and in light of your knowledge of Calvin, your, I guess, could, could you speak? I know you can't ultimately speak on his behalf because he's not here, but to the best of <laughs> your knowledge, want me to. <laughs> <laughs> how would Calvin define reformed and always reforming? Yeah. I mean, as you know, that term is often used just to be able to change anything. Uh, you know, that, that, that under the name of reforming means we can just, it's a license to do what we think we want to do next and that's so that that's a highly contested term how Calvin would understand it um, I think is to say that we live in touched on this bef bef before that we that the opening of the Institutes is about the relationship between God and humanity the whole of the Institute I mean God is, or sorry Calvin uh, Calvin uh, is not interested in speaking of God in kind of abstract ways. He's interested in Calvin, in God in, in, in uh, the relationship between, you know, it's a relational uh, between God and, and humanity. And so he's not, he, you know, he's not, he doesn't speak at any great length about the names of God or, or you know, the, 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 the character of the divine in some abstract way. For Calvin, God is in relationship with humanity, and that relationship is dynamic, it is, it is, it is through the word, it, it is through, you know, through the spirit, it is in Christ. Um, that, that means that we have to constantly be returning to that, uh, you know, to the, the authority of the word. Which means that everything we do, whatever institutions we build, whatever churches we do, what, whatever the society looks like, that word for Calvin remains the sole authority. And we have to constantly be in relationship to that, which means that we constantly, have, you know, as our society changes, as everything changes, we have to be returning to that constant. And that should be the only, I mean, this was Luther's great message at the beginning of the Reformation. This is the only authority. The institutions have no authority amongst, you know, in themselves. Uh, the tradition has no authority. That, that our relationship uh, as, is constantly called back to the word. And that requires, because we are human and fallen and all the rest of it, requires constant renewal. Constant, as Calvin would put it, constant repentance, constant renewal. And that's how I would uh, argue he understands this notion of always reforming, is that it's never static, it's never fixed, it's never done. We can't just say we've sorted that out. It's a dynamic living relationship. And because it involves an imperfect humanity with a perfect God, uh, that relationship needs to be constantly renewed and restored because we keep getting it wrong. 
We've got uh, students in the room doing work at different levels. Uh, your passion for Calvin has already been commented upon. You're just spe speaking about uh, always reforming. Um, I'm going to ask you more of a personal question, if you don't, if you don't mind. Um, how did your work on Calvin form you? Just a couple of, maybe a couple of things that just, I mean, you, your own understanding of yourself, uh, understanding of Calvin, understanding of the world, um, is encourage them in their work that what they're doing as students is about Calvin's vision. That is knowing God, piety, living, and um, share some things that you've you've learned. You know, when I I remember uh, when I was pretty young, reading the Sermon on the Mount and thinking, I can never. I don't think I can ever be this. I, I'm, it, this is, I'll never. I'm, I'm too aware of what I'm like uh, to, to, to achieve this. And I started to think, well, maybe this is a standard that I just can't, I'm just not cut out to, 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 to me. Um, I think, you know, that's been a lifelong uh, journey. Uh, and I've had many, I've been fortunate to have many, you know, mentors and friends and colleagues and students and who have been such an important part of that. But what I found in Calvin, and we've already touched on, at least I've touched on it, is, is, is that uh, amongst the people that I've read and, and, and thought about and written about, Calvin was the one who really uh, brought home to me that it, it is a journey. Um, and that, you know, our, imp our imperfections, our, our our fallenness are part of our humanity in journeying on that on that road, and that you know I, I read a passage this morning in the paper uh, about you know he talks sometimes we're crawling, you know it's step by step, and I thought uh, so I think what maybe to address your question I I, I got out of Calvin was a strong sense that that um, that we that we. We move along, we move along the road, and that road is not going to be easy. And we are by no means uh, perfect uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But the God who who calls us uh, never changes, and that we grow, you know, and has made it possible for us to grow uh, into that. And so, uh, you know, what I can would say to my younger self now is that. Um, yeah, you probably can't do all these things that are laid out here now, but uh, there is a possibility that you will grow uh, towards them. And I found Calvin a, a, mm. um, a voice that really spoke to me about that. That's great. Thank you. Fantastic.